0: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to this. It is the Infrequent Flying Podcast pilot episodes. I'm JB and as always, I am joined by our three pilots. Duncan, how are you? I am great, thanks JB. How are you doing? I'm very well. Now... Have you been doing anything over this awful COVID period? Are you able to teach people to fly, or is everything on lockdown for the RAF as well as everyone else?
2: No, we kind of locked down until we got uh, a little bit of uh, a few, uh, a few things in place to make sure we were as safe as we can be, but. Because um, the aeroplane that uh, I, I fly the prefect is side-by-side seating, you're around about 30 oh centimetres at the very most away. So keeping two metres away was kind of tricky. So we had to put some things in place to uh, to mitigate that, uh, which we did. Uh, but now we're fully back at them now. So um, back full-time flying uh, lots, uh, at least uh, once or twice a day. So things, what, what, are, things are great.
3: are not what was the fix was it putting a plastic bag over your head
2: <laughs> i've <laughs> i've had a clear uh, two, one a clear one clearly a clear one two plastic bags um <laughs> one, in case one, in case fails. one
3: breaks there's,
2: <laughs> what? there's a joke about that isn't there uh, i don't think we should tell that joke no uh, no no <laughs> so yes i've had a a plastic and a paper bag um over the old head Two, just two holes like it's an old sandwich bag and I've got two holes for yeah. the eyes and a little smiley face for the
1: mouth. Like those NFL fans when, uh, when, when their team is losing.
2: Yeah. Um, well, you've note. absolutely nailed the RAF's response to COVID. Yeah. <laughs> well done.
1: Excellent. Um, on a serious and note, though. plastic so, bag over the nose cone. <laughs> what do you do about all the um, breathing apparatus? I mean, I actually thought that would make it a little bit safer because you've got your nose and mouth covered if you want to.
2: Uh, well, no, we don't, actually, in our little aeroplane. We have a boom mic, uh, so we don't have an oxygen system, uh, and therefore we don't have an oxygen mask. So, uh, no, we don't have anything. I think, you know, as you go, you know, further up the, uh, the aeroplane um, training system, Then uh, you end up a Texan, which has got an oxygen system, and then onto Hawk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess it's a bit closer, and you're sat more than two meters away, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it becomes a little easier. But for us… The way that we're doing it is we are, uh, to be serious for just one moment, uh, is we're consolidating crews. So uh, I have one student at the moment that's about to expand with the relaxing of the uh, of the covid measures to two students. Uh, but it's a great system. We've uh, you know, some would say that uh, we, the Air Force really should have bought into this a long time ago. You know, having a primary and secondary instructor. I'm being facetious. We've kind of always had that, but it seems to have gone away recently. But since um, since we've had covid uh, and having that primary, secondary instructor um, construct back again, it's worked really well. It's really good.
3: Just so I have visions of your poor young uh, pupil sat there um, like do you remember Airplane. When he keep when Ted Stryker's talking to people in the cockpit, in the, uh, down the back, and that bloke pours petrol all over himself and then sits there waiting to light it. Yeah. Is he, uh, is he sick of you yet or are you two getting on like a house on fire?
2: <laughs> well, none taken. Thanks very much for your nice <laughs> <spotters>. <laughs> You see, Have that's you one of those things that, that no one says to a station commander, is it? <laughs> oh, sir you're bloody boring. Um <laughs> as <Harvey laughs> says did you say they yes do. sir. Yes sir, whatever you say sir. Um the uh yes, I've lost a few to be honest. Uh there's been a couple of burnings <laughs> and, uh, and 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 <laughs> and a hanging, but you know, I've moved on to my 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 final student and uh and they seem okay at the moment, fairly stable.
1: Excellent. And then working round clockwise on my screen. We have Gorris. goddess how are you mate? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Yeah, I've
3: uh, clearly been keeping the country safe from my front room um, and uh, integrating aircraft onto carriers. I mean, actually, they, the um, navy and the air force have done a bloody great job recently because COVID hit just as they were um, putting some modifications onto uh, Queen Elizabeth, um, but managed to get that done. You know, despite uh, they had to do some serious stuff in order to uh, to get the workforce back in there. Mm. Got her out on time. Uh, all the crew, so uh, just over, um I think it was 800, got tested before they went on. They went into isolation beforehand. And Queen Elizabeth sailed off and she's done a load of sea trials and passed them with flying colors. And only, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, the F 35s from Marham went and did their carrier qualification on board. You probably saw a couple yes, of pics. I did. So despite COVID, um, we've been uh, we've been piling forward with that, which has been really good.
1: She seems to be flying through these sea trials.
3: Yeah, yeah. She's doing really well, actually. the I mean, I think it helps that the crew are quite experienced now. They've been across the Atlantic a couple of times, and now they're going into the one where um, it's called OST, Operational Sea uh, uh, Trials, where... They're doing their proper, um, are they safe to operate, fire drills, you know, that sort of stuff. The stuff that Dunkel remember about getting wood wedges out as if she's been hauled below the waterline, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So emergency drills that gets the entire crew doing what uh, they need to be doing. Although it is different in this ship, um, you know, there's a lot more automation. And then once she'd done that, They've got the jets on board um and then she's going back in uh, a couple of more modifications and then the uh the American jets are coming over to uh to do it with us towards the end of the year Actually, so uh all going really well
1: so the marram jets which were which landed on that I thought they'd already been carrier qualified is is this just an extension of what they were doing
3: yeah so like when they did some of that carrier qualification last year you're correct there was some of the marram pilots went out to uh to go and do that um but this time it was all of the guys. And 207 Squadron had done it a bit earlier in the year. So the, uh, the OCU got carrier qualified, and now 617 have as well. So, uh, yeah, and uh, apparently it's just like the simulator, and it's one of those things where they'd plussed up the amount of, of, uh, of trips that they were going to do in order to qualify, but now they've whipped them back out again because, you know, it's pretty straightforward, and uh, the guys are taking it to it like a duck to water
1: excellent yeah now just back, back to covid these carriers can be rather tricky can they not with uh with uh with covid as our american friends have found out
3: yeah that was a rough one wasn't it wasn't the it? uh theodore roosevelt um uh, you know ultimately they had one sailor die on that from covid and i think uh i'm, I'm sure i saw in the paper the other day that of um something like four thousand sailors on board two thousand tested positive um and so uh, you know I, I i tell you what if You know, the good thing to come from it was the U.S. Navy learned so many lessons from that individual incident, which then ended up protecting all the rest of their carriers and ships around the world in the way that they did stuff. And also that was the reason that we ended up testing, you know, because this was reasonably early on in in the COVID business as well, um, testing all of the sailors uh, that were going on to uh, Queen Elizabeth as well. So the the Americans.
2: What did you you test them for?
3: Uh, reading, writing skills, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, a few of them. Most, failed, most, clearly. Most,
2: most sailors need. Well,
3: never mind. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, actually, uh, ho- horrific that it happened in the way that it did for that particular carrier. But, um, you know, they've shared all the lessons out of it. And I think it's made everyone else, uh, you know, a, a lot safer because of it.
1: Yeah, and of course, the serious business of defence has um, uh, has to continue. You've still got to have boys and boys in typhoons ready to take off, and people at sea, you know, ready to do whatever they do there. Yeah, and
2: I, uh, I, I tell you us, what, is that, it? Yeah, um, go God, is, is it? Um, uh, we're getting a bit into a, a COVID episode, aren't we? But uh, do, you, have, do you know? Have we suffered any sort of COVID cases? We we haven't had any. Uh, on fifty-seven squadron, at, you know, in our little flying arena. But has there has there been anything happened on the, um, the QE2 or the um... QE2? <laughs> well, is that what you call it? No. Why not? You're, you're
3: becoming all. Um, uh... The QE2 was a was a cruise liner.
1: So what do you call it? The Queen Elizabeth. The Second. <laughs> 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 uh,
2: you're like do you now have you started calling um the boat the ship and the yes yeah. yes yeah <laughs> was,
3: the ship we visit the heads do I you go a, i go with ships in my house now
2: have you become you know very sensitive to that sort of comment The the qe2 the what
3: <laughs> no, only because uh, only the QE2 was a, was a cruise ship, wasn't oh, it? Because
1: it's Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me.
3: HMS Queen Elizabeth.
1: C- can I just say, there is one thing which I do find peculiar, is we call ships She. No problem with that. But what about when a ship's got a masculine name? So, for instance, She, like the, the, Prince of oh, the Prince of Wales. Well, the Prince of Wales. <laughs> or Bernard, yeah. Or... USS Winston Churchill is a she. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is ridiculous. It should be a he.
3: <laughs> it's a good I point, JB. Do you know but what? Uh, if we were in France, France to talk, talk about, about um, strict grammatical rules for this, wouldn't there?
2: Yeah. Well, we talk about the talking about the French. We talk about, um, you know, I, I think most people call their aeroplanes a she as well. But uh, I was walking along at Fairford one time, and there was a French pilot who was fly, flying a uh, Thunderbolt, and he was sat there next to this massive Thunderbolt. And uh, someone I just walked past as he asked the question, oh, she is beautiful. And this Frenchman kicked right off, said, A she? A she? It is not a she. It is a fighting machine. It is not a she. It is a man. It is a man's machine. (laughs) It really flashed up large. I mean, he he has a point. uh, It's national, um, you know, whether we call the. The uh, Russians
1: call their ships he's. All the Russian ships are he. Are they? Yeah. Oh. Uh. But
2: sorry to go back to the question, Goddard, do we, yep. no, do we know um, of any sort of COVID cases that have then we've managed to contain and shut down and then, you know, c- clearly we're still operating?
3: It, I, I, in my area, um, two of the sailors uh, that they tested out, of the 800 or so, tested positive um, and they isolated those guys away from the rest of the crew. This was before they even got on. Right. And i think because of all the procedures that they've used they've not had any outbreaks on uh, on any of the ships um and and actually in the sort of defense updates uh, you know i've heard very very little about um uh, you know it affecting defense at all so uh,
1: i guess we're doing all right mm. now last last to pitch in Por- porky how are you been very quiet there and eating unbelievably I've, eating wait, It, it was
3: not very quiet very you well, could hear well, him eating all the way through Well, you've been eating, having a porky? boiled
4: egg. I just stuffed my entire dinner. Brilliant. Just because they're perfect, you know. done not on. Really good. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I heard you've st- you, you've started stuffy face now because you've been drinking since since four in the afternoon, and you've all and you've all all, all of a sudden got the munchies. Which isn't in, it, which well, isn't well, strictly not I true, mean, is I it? I
4: did have a couple of beers. My my display nav jabber popped over uh, uh with a couple of beers, so uh you know it was too nice today to not do that but um no it wasn't a session at all and i am i promise excellent so i guess you've been up
1: to nothing then parky because you can't fly around and, well you could fly around spitfires but of course there's much more to it than you just popping in, in, in uh, uh into the cockpit so how are you preparing to get to get
4: back in the air well, we are back in the air. So the uh, the CAA allowed, it's called SSAC, the two-seater spirit flying they allowed SSA to uh, recommence uh, probably two weeks ago. So I got recurrent um, and uh, flew my first four days, so sort of Thursday, Thursday, through to Sunday last Sunday and did uh, sixteen passenger trips. So, hell. Yeah, we're we're back back up and running. That's incredible. Up and flying.
1: Well, for, for, first of all, that is very very good to hear. Second of all, um, how long do you need to not be flying, not not to be current? Because you said you had to get recurrent again.
4: Yeah, so you have to get recurrent. We need to do. Uh, you need to do uh, three landings in ninety days. You need to do a, a currency check, which is an annual thing. Um, and there's a five years of uh, flying sort of similar type of aircraft in 18 months. So, yeah, just a, sort of, you know, a days of uh, a bit like the BBMF, to be honest, you know, a, a flying test with Duncan uh, kind of equivalent. And then uh, a bit of a quiz, bit of ground school. And uh, and then, you know, you're back in it, really. Mm-hmm. Who,
3: who, do you do, who do you do your checks with down there? Pansy? Charlie Brown. Oh, OK. Yeah, of course.
4: Yeah. Did... So he, he's got a few hours under his belt. I think he's got 12,000 hours now.
3: Wow. Oh, my goodness. That's quite a lot, isn't it?
2: <laughs> yeah, he had to sign my logbook the other day, and uh, he looked at my miserable 5,000 hours and turned his nose up. Yeah. Like,
4: yeah. God, what yeah. a show-off.
3: Yeah, is I ancient. Mean... And how's the, how's the airfield down there, Parky? Is it rock hard now?
4: It's good, yeah. So uh, I think because they have obviously had a lot of time where there, were, you know, there was clearly no flying at all. So I don't know if it's the fact that, you know, aircraft... Haven't because it's quite a small little grass strip down at Headcorn, but um, they haven't had the usual when it's been softer, you know, April May of lots of flying, you know, very little. I think they've flattened out a few bumps, but it does seem to be remarkably pleasant. It's not, you know, not nearly as bumpy as I recall. It's nice. So uh, that was good. And Duxford's always you know a lovely uh big grass strip and and, so, he, uh, and
3: here's a nerdy question for you so when you know so when it's hot and dry and the grass sort of dies off like it does starts to yellow out i mean you know how it is in the fighters when when you've got a bit of grass there it slows you down quite nicely are you kind of you know like the golf ball on the golf course sort of bouncing along you know and you just keep going is it you know does it make a shorter strip seem uh you know a bit lo- a, a bit shorter even
4: do you know, it, it seems fine. I learned a very interesting fact at Cywell. Somebody was telling me that there was, back in the day, there was a sort of standard RAF grass, you know, literally a grass seed. I don't know if it was a broader grass or something or other. That, you know, the, the RAF genuinely worked out. You got nice breaking action on this, and it was just a, a good grass that they had. But, um, you know, I just think for sort of the length it is and, and everything, I don't know, I, I, I've not noticed anything. You know, to be honest, you know, even, as long as you pop it down fairly near the beginning of the runway and, you know, your speed is good, it's ridiculous how well the Spitfire does stop. You know, the Griffins are a little bit longer, aren't they? But, you know, in I, I think probably sort of almost halfway down, certainly two-thirds of the way down, I'm always turning off, you know, Headcorn's runway, and it's only... You know, eight hundred and a bit meters. It's not not a long runway, and there wasn't much headwind either this weekend.
3: No, I bet. We've Got all the windows in the house open at the moment to try and get some of the uh, some of the headwind in. The um, uh, actually, of interest, uh, uh, I know Dunks read it. Parky, have you read Silver Spitfire by Tom Neill? No, I haven't. No, uh, I, it's brilliant. I have really enjoyed it, and um, so I read that in. Uh, 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 in lockdown, and one of the, and he's based um, running up to D Day with the Americans down in the Headcorn area. Um, it's one yeah. of the satellite fields for the uh, um, for the US Army Air Force over here. Um, so uh, I'm sure he talks about. Do you remember when I, I came down to see you? We went for a beer in the little village. I'm sure he talks about that little village around the yeah, corner,
4: Smarden. Yeah. Yes. Well, th- th- there's some amazing stories. The owner came over and. He can remember, He's uh, maybe it was his dad, but at one time, a, lank, a Lancaster landed at Headcorn because oh it was God. all shot up and a bit, you know, three-engine sort of job, and it just sat at Headcorn. It must have been a very, very interesting landing to get a Lancaster into Headcorn. Anyway, the boys did it. It was broken, the lank and it was all sort of just kind of waiting to be repaired, and the crew, one of the crew came down last year, and, you know, was was talking about it. He was the bomb aimer. And then I think it was the daughter of the pilot as well that, that came down. And then this owner's granddad said he also was a kid. They knew the coppers and they broke into the Lancaster as children and played in it. Wow. <laughs> and I just think that's just brilliant. They literally had a toy at Lancaster, you know, until... Two weeks, the RAF came and fixed the thing, and then they flew it out there. But there's a picture of this Lancaster just sort of sat on the we- uh, western edge of uh, Headcorn. But you know, just ridiculously cool stories.
1: So, have, has anyone ever come across the uh, the documentary? I'm going to say, is the B twenty nine the one that dropped the atomic weapons? I always get confused. Yes, yes. As ever, another gal. As ever, has ever- okay. another guy. Has anyone ever seen the documentary where they find one in the, in the Arctic Circle? It's a completely true documentary. An atomic weapon or a B-29? A B-29.
2: So, I haven't seen that, but that does sound like a belter.
1: Yeah, so it's not, it in good nick? It's really not a belter. It's absolutely tragic. Uh, spoiler alert, I, I'm going I'm to ruin the story for you, but I, I'm going to have to tell you anyway. So the story is um, a crew were flying over uh, the Arctic, engine trouble or whatnot, something happens, but they have to land this B-29. And they land it, and it's in perfect condition. And because the... Um, the sorry, the, because the Arctic not, uh, is basically dry. It's either frozen or it's not exactly raining. Um, the thing has stayed in perfect condition for a long time. So this collector decides he's going to go to the Arctic, recondition it in the summer with his, um, with his team. He's going to spend his own money... He reckons it'll be worth something, and then fly it back and sell it. That that is that is the plan. So they film it.
4: The... I know this story, JB. Yes, it's I awful. Know, yeah. It's but awful. Just, I know you. I know you've come to the point of saying I thought it was a B seventeen, but it, it was a B twenty nine. It's it? a
1: B twenty nine. Yeah. Okay. All right. So they um, so they they fly out with the whole crew. He's got this, en- this engineer who is flying in and out on 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 this little uh, two en- two engine thing with all his parts. They've set up rigging. They're taking the engines off. They're reconditioning it. They're putting the engines back on, and it's actually you know they actually get it to fly. Well, I say they get it to fly. They get it to flight flight condition. They make a, They make a, They make a taxiway. They are taxiing, and it goes over a bump. And as it goes over a bump, for some unknown reason, there is some diesel which spills over the, um, which spills over some, some communication equipment. And before you know it, the, cockpit's, the cockpit is on fire and this thing is now sat on the runway waiting to go. There's smoke bellowing out and in the end, the whole thing burn, burn, uh, uh, burns into nothing. And they spent oh. it, like, six months restoring this, flying parts in and out. The chief engineer died, basically, do, do, doing it. And uh, yeah, it's now still in the Arctic, but, bur- but burnt to bits. It's a fascinating documentary and very sad.
2: Blimey. What, why, would uh, that, why do you think... I can't quite comprehend how they would have I know you said diesel, I doubt it. Uh, well, unless they were sort of had some di- sort of...
1: diesel for a generator. I don't think it was for the actual plane.
2: I wonder why would, they, why would they have had that in the car? Co- we'll just put a cup of diesel up on the combing here, <laughs> yeah. just in case we need to put it in the generator we've
1: got down the back. I haven't I, no, maybe It was they'd bit probably,
3: odd. Maybe they would probably bodged it. Are there any... Fly- I think there are. There is a flying B-29 in the world, isn't there?
1: I think there's probably a couple, is there not? Is there? I think there is. Well, there might even be a Russian one. I say that. The Russians made a B-29. They, they reverse engineered it. They
2: were called Washingtons, weren't they, when we had oh, them? Oh, yeah. 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 We, had them at, we had them at Coningsby. So they were at Coningsby um, just after the war. Washingtons.
1: Have you ever seen the contraption that they used to fire the, fire the gun turret on the top of the B-29?
3: Is it a remote turret?
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable. If you think about what they were doing they've got a computer in them, so if you look at a b twenty nine it 's got these little glass domes, right? so the guy is looking around the around the glass dome and he fires, but the guns are like i don't know ten ten meters back or some or or however far they are, and they kind of rotate in line with this very very basic computer that works off like um, valves and what and, and whatnot it's incredible
3: that's good. Who knew you were the world expert on B29s, JB? That's good. I, I, you would have dev- JB's De- the
1: world expert on everything God is.
3: He would have devoured much more of the internet during lockdown.
1: Oh yeah, lots of internet has been devoured, indeed. Although
3: uh, JB, did, have you uh, so in terms of intros, have you moved jobs recently? Did I hear
1: I have, I have. After after many many happy years uh, serving the people of Oldham with the, uh, with their financial services needs, I have moved to uh, Beardmore and Co. So Beardmore and Co. Independent financial Advisors, which is where I now reside. So uh, yeah, if you need any of that bump, you can look me up there, Jonathan Beardmore at at Beardmore and Co. So that's actually my father's business, which he's had for uh, quite some time. So very happy to be back there. Oh, nice. yeah, oh, good one. Working with my brothers and my father. So very very nice.
3: Family business established. 19, I'm going to go for it, 78.
1: No, 1997, wow. 1997, oh, sadly. But there's actually four of us working there, right? Uh, as in advisors, it's, it's a bigger business than that. But it's my dad and my three brothers. So it really should be, you know, do you like as law firms? It should be beard more, beard more, beard more, and beard more. Really?
2: <laughs> that sounds like a Monty Python sketch, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it?
1: Does. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Beardmore, beard beard Beardmore, beard Beardmore,
2: Beardmore, Beardmore.
3: Beard <laughs> and is, is there, um, you know, like some people uh, invest in fine wines and that sort of stuff, um, you know, are Warbirds good investment these days? I mean...
1: Well, I, you know, because of course it's a regulated business, I have to start everything with this is not advice and whatnot. But no, <laughs> Warbirds, I, don't, I do not think Warbirds go into pensions anytime soon. Although I'd love to have a war boot. Are
2: you thinking of buying one, uh, Goddard?
3: Well, I tell you what, I was at RAF Benson today. <laughs> I had to go and do my annual training and uh, break out the uh, the pistol and um, and do me shooting, which was really good, actually. Really enjoyed it. But Did um, so you fire hey, it gangster, styley? He's got Negative. a bayonet on his. Negative. Although I did have to. I'd not done it before. Do you I remember Link
2: leave- Taylor off the back of the carriage? remember that? Maybe no, just- I wasn't
3: there. So,
2: okay, so it was a three-squadron story. But uh, yeah, you had to do your pistol training, even when you were on the carrier. And uh, But, of course, it's ridiculous. So they said, right, right, sirs, imagine there is a target to your front at 20 metres. They're off the back. They're on the quarter deck just aiming out to sea. So it's ridiculous. <laughs> they go, right, imagine there is a target there, which you're going to shoot at. And anyway, cut a long story short, um, Link Taylor then uh, just in a gangster style, he pops his pistol over the back and unloads (laughs) the whole mag into the sea.
3: (laughs) Duncan, I'm sure it must have been someone else because Air Vice Marshal Taylor, I'm sure, would never have done anything like that.
2: No, it was definitely him.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was... um, We mentioned before talking about off the back of ships that they used to... uh, We must have talked about bombing splash targets on the back. where they big yeah, big big length of rope and they and they put a target in there. and it was um wasn't it husky on three squadron? Husky? when he was on exchange on the sea Harrier where he did a loft, a radar loft bomb on the um uh, on the splash target, and it missed and this fourteen kilogram uh, practice bomb went through two decks oh. <laughs> of h m s illustrious.
2: I think that was a high dive mate. I think it oh, was, was, was a it? high dive. That's what I, I but I, uh, which I think, again, then, well, either one would be a 14 kg, wouldn't it? Sort of a, a slick uh, replica yeah, yeah, yeah. weapon. Yeah. And uh, yeah, went, went, but someone lost his hand or something. It wasn't like oh, a, really? know that. It wasn't a, you know, what an amusing incident. There was quite some injury that <laughs> so, went on.
1: Sorry, just uh, oh, yeah. you need to fill in the gaps here. So what did you say then? God, as you said, it was a, a, a toss. What on earth did you say?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good point so um this i used to love this when i did the f-16 training um
2: park the, zoned out now by the way
3: well no, Parky's listening say? because he would have done a, this as well so you do bob? so you do it's in the uk we call it a, a toss maneuver which is you so you're flying along at low level you pull up it was designed for
2: it doesn't um, mean that it's just a very bad maneuver <laughs> yeah <laughs> is, is this thing? what the
1: buccaneers <laughs> you, used, used to do
3: yeah, but you know, some, they had sort of guided missiles. This is for like a freefall weapon, so it was designed for a nuclear delivery.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, bucks did it. Definitely.
3: Where you would you would pull up to about I don't know above thirty degrees or so, um, and at a certain point you release your weapon. You then turn away, peel back, and, and run away as fast as you can in the opposite direction. And obviously, this bomb continues you know, apogees at some point and then comes down onto a target. So you can imagine a sighting system in some of the older aeroplanes, you know, prior to GPS weapons and that sort of thing, was pretty complex, actually, and really clever. And so, you know, you could so what we would do down the range is there'd be a radar reflector down there. So at a certain point when you could see it on the radar, you would lock to this radar reflector, you had an offset in because as soon as you knew exactly where that radar reflector is, your kit now knows exactly where the target is, and you would get the information to be able to pull up. And it could either be an automatic release or a manual release on this one. Um, and obviously, being Americans, I loved it. The uh, <laughs> The competition that we did for this loft bombing was called, you know, the winner was the Duke of Nuke ah, because it was a nice. yeah, cause it was a nuclear delivery. It's fast to say I was not the Duke of Nuke. Um, <laughs> Because those things could flipping well go anywhere. But, uh, you know, you only need a rough area when you're throwing a nuclear weapon off. But um, when we did it with little practice bombs, it was really good, actually. And if you got some, you know, close to the target on something that you're dropping a few miles away, um, you know, from low level, uh, unguided, flipping brilliant.
1: What, so OK, so Duncan can answer this one. So what's a high diver? Uh, other than something that Tom Daly does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's almost the same
3: without the somersaulting. <laughs>
2: It kind of is. It's just it's a medium level delivery. So um, from whatever height, you know, normally let's say twenty thousand feet, uh, and you pull down into uh, again normally a thirty degree dive, something like that. But it can be anything from you know anything fifteen through to forty five degree angle of dive, which doesn't sound that much. You kind of think, well, you know, nineties where you think you'd be going, but um, when you're you've got 30 degrees or 40 degrees nose down, um, then it it is quite a a steep descent. So you then again use a targeting system uh, and and a way of targeting um, well, whichever target you're looking at um, to then deliver a slick bomb, so without any retardation, uh, onto a target, and of course because now it's got a lot of energy uh, induced on it, it's, it should have a lot more penetration than you know if you were to release a bomb uh, which has to be retarded at um, you, you know to so have effectively uh, a, a retardation system on the back of a bomb delivered Why? from low level, Why so it, it doesn't frag the airplane that's dropping it.
1: Why would I want my bomb? To slow down? Why would I want that sort of system rather than speed because, up? Anymore. Because
4: because the bomb will blow the aircraft up, JB. If you're yeah. if you're delivering at low level, so you need it to uh, obviously hang in the air for you know so that you can drop at low level.
3: Yeah, yeah. Because you imagine, JB, if you drop a slick one at low level, it just flies in formation with you for a little bit, and then it um, goes on. and hits, Yeah, and hits the target at the same time you get over the top of the target, so it frags itself. So at low level we had uh, there were parachutes in uh, little parachute retardation devices that would come out, slow the weapon down. I mean, again, you think that the these could be hellish accurate. Um, and the fact that you've got a parachute involved and all the mechanics in uh, in the aeroplane in terms of the uh, the weapon system and the sighting system, really clever to take into account all of that stuff so you could actually hit the target.
1: That's incredible. I, I, I never knew that. I, I wasn't sure why. I wasn't sure at all. Why they did it?
2: The and, frag and the median... JB on a thousand pound bomb is enormous. Uh, so, for instance, uh, we used to think it was thirty eight second splits. We did um, thirty eight seconds was the minimum that you needed um, to uh, avoid the frag hemisphere 38 of a bomb. Thirty eight seconds. Had... Thirty eight yeah. seconds. Yeah. What and when you think you're travelling at four twenty knots, you know it's it's. Uh, it's a long way, you're a long way away at that point before. Yeah, so you're over
1: you're five miles away. Yeah. Um, no. At that point. So if you were, say, four miles away, you might, you might, there might be a possibility of you getting hit by something. Oh, uh, yes. no, someone coming,
3: someone coming through the target behind. So Yes, do? you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and then the, and the medium altitude stuff is generally because of threats below you so if there's a surface air to air missile system some of the you know the older ones reach up to you know 10 11 12 14 15 17000 feet so you'd plan your release based on the top level of that particular weapon system clearly some of the huge sams you know and definitely the modern ones that's why you end up with stealth fighters like F35 to be able to get in amongst these spangly radars and the uh, and the super high tech but there's still a lot a lot of low tech Surface-to-air missiles, you know, dating back five, ten, twenty, thirty years around the world, where you know you can be above some of the short-range stuff. So uh, you know, um, you end up flying up there and releasing your weapons up there and planning it accordingly.
1: That's incredible. So, Parky, let, let me ask you this: how how did you go 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 about hunt, um, hunting these guys down with their retarded bombs and whatnot?
4: Well, I mean, I, I was uh, yeah, so I was air defence, so we would. I mean, typically, if, if we were doing affiliation training with Jags or Harriers, I was on the Phantom or Tornado, we would we would uh, sort of try and shoot them or have the fight before they went into the range or before they did their sort of, you know, exact bombing bit. So gave them a chance to sort of regroup. But um, when I did my exchange on the F-16, it was a sort of multi-role. So it was 50 air defence, 50% mud moving. And I, I really enjoyed, especially the goose bays. You know, you could sort of, you, know, you, you had to do the sort of, uh, I think, 14 trips out there at 100 foot in, in the two So
2: just explain where that is, Parky? I
4: think we have... Sorry, that's it, out if, in but. Canada. We use the, the low fly system out there. But I, I, I absolutely, I remember you probably done a fair bit of it, Doug. But the, there were little cardboard cutout sort of SAMs or tanks, you know, somewhere in this massive canadian okay. you know, wilderness that you had to find and okay. uh, you know, do a simulated delivery on and I, I found it massively satisfying actually to try and you know do you could do a system delivery i seem to recall in the f-16 but the far more accurate one at the time with the bombs we had was the uh, was a was a manual delivery you overrode it and then just you know literally put the you know the the target the the continuous what was it Continu-
3: ccip continuous continuous checkpoint yeah
4: but that through it. And uh, you know, when we went to the range, it was it was always a DH in the F sixteen. I'm sure it was in, in pretty much any fast jet. They were, you know, ridiculously accurate. But it was it, it was something that I, I was just really. I- was almost uh, embarrassed to admit it as an air defender, but it, it was great fun, especially going to the range and dropping weapons. But, uh, you
2: know, but just, mate, when you went to when you were out in Goose Bay, because the reason that we generally uh, detached out to Goose Bay was that uh, we would practice uh, what you'd call operational low flying, which is 100 feet flying. Um, and. Uh, the whole of this uh, wilderness area uh, on the uh, east coast of Canada, uh, sort of northeastern coast up there, flying from Goose Bay, was uh, a 100-foot flying area. Whereas in the UK, there used to be – I don't know if there still are. I think there still are some. Yeah, but,
3: I think it's 7-tango um, and 14-tango still around.
2: So that there, there are areas where you can or you you, you could go and fly uh, operational low flying, I doubt very much anyone does it anymore, do they? But um, you, you you could go and do that in there, but it was quite a small area, whereas Canada, it was just this vast, vast swathe of wilderness that you could fly at 100 feet uh, with a range system that uh, that the park he's talking about, and the flying was just phenomenal. Flying at 100 feet, when you think, you know, a bog standard tree's about 100 feet tall, so you could be flying down a Frankie, river, yes. a gully of a river with the tops of trees whistling Past you, um, you know, doing 420 knots, and it's just the most exhilarating thing. You'd have lakes out there which were absolutely mirror calm, and I remember those were actually the most dangerous things because it was quite easy just to set up an insidious descent. Um, and when you're flying at 100 feet, it, it only takes, well, you know, a second or two, and, y- you know, you can end up being extremely low and extremely close to the terrain. So, it was really, really concentrated the mind. It was fantastic flying.
1: Did we not share yeah. a video on our group of an F-4 flying at 50 feet around the Falklands? I think. Uh,
2: uh, uh, I, you know, I'm sh- the park. that wasn't Parky, was it? It definitely
1: wasn't Parky. Was it? No.
2: It wasn't no, Parky because... Definitely not Parky. I think, you know...
1: I, yeah, I, I I did because... Um, How from, dare you? Uh, a friend of, Bring
2: into question my professionalism.
1: Uh, no, a friend of mine's uh, father-in-law was flying F-4s about the same time as Parky, and I know that you recognise the squadron. So you've, we've definitely
4: passed it around. The, oh, um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, just, this, I mean, I could... And I'm sure all of us could. You know, this is back in the day, but you know, certainly with the Dutch, the the, uh, the video equipment and the head-up display um, that it recorded, it was was really, really, you know, good quality. And the uh, the videos that the Dutch had kicking around, you know, I mean, it's it was a long, long time ago, twenty five years ago. But you know, I, I've seen um, I've seen F16s with centerline tanks flying with ten foot on the rad alt over lakes. And and at times it, it went to zero to ten foot zero ten foot and that's with a centerline tank that's you know six foot you know it, it just it, ridiculous it looks like you know you're in a car or go kart to be honest but you know that, it's, it's, that, it's, that it's, sort it, of it, stuff it, did you know probably back in the day and I've I've definitely seen some French videos of some uh, some amazing stuff out in the, you know the desert but um you know what Dunk's saying you know if you're actually operating the aircraft and you know especially i'm, I'm sure be the same in the uh, in the harrier you know to try and get yourself fight your way past some sort of air defense threat and then essentially you're, you're probably having to kind of you know split for want of a better word you know you you not so you hit the beam you then almost regroup and then try and get your your bombs on the target within a few seconds you are working so hard in the f-16 obviously operating the radar as well and I would say 100 foot is about if, – if you are working hard, you, you really don't want to be any lower than that. And you
2: did know? you do all that stuff out there um, in the F-16 at 100 foot parky?
4: Yes, yeah.
2: Yeah, because I, I just remember it. It would be interesting to get your take on it, actually, because we – Um, is a great, you know, skill to work up to. And uh, as you say, high workload. But uh, the tactics we'd use is we would, if we were a pair, we'd be two to three miles battle. So uh, that would be line abreast formation, flying at 100 feet. And you would then, you'd only occasionally glimpse your wingman or your leader, whichever one it was. Um, You'd see him just, you know, pop up uh, uh, probably once or twice every... uh, 15-20 seconds so you knew that you were still in formation. You had an air-to-air and so you kind of knew you were still there but um, I guess that made it pretty difficult for air defenders to to find those sort of uh, formations. If you had four ships, you'd have offset card, you'd have guys, you know, thirty seconds or a minute behind in in wide battle as well. So four ships coming through trying to saturate uh, those air defense radars. H- how was it on the other uh, on the other side of the fence, Parky?
4: I mean, so long as you had velocity, i.e., you know, there was closure because they're all looking. They're not. Looking in pulse, so so they would just see the ground, you know. Obviously, a a little harrier at hundred foot, you would not see him with a with a pulse set. So you're, you're you're looking at the Doppler shift, and you know all these clever radars. And the F sixteen was, uh, you know, medium PRFs at a pulse repetition frequency. They were ridiculously clever. But you know, the the Tornado and the Phantom were very good. You know, you would you'd see everybody if they were closing once. And we, you know we would tend not to try and give them a sniff or a lock because with the radar warners, yeah, I remember the Harry. Was boy, it more you difficult? Had your Zeus pod and, yeah, and, that's and right. You, you would be. Was
2: it, was it more difficult though to see us at a hundred feet than it was 250?
4: No, no, I think generally, you know, it's a tornado and F sixteen. Once you've uh, in track while scan, you know, you get the TD box and you get the target designated box in your head up display where you are, and and you know it's pretty accurate. So you're just looking at that, and sure enough you know it's it's very much sort of terrain dependent isn't it duncan lighting levels and all yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah. but you know bizarrely at the time you know before i was a uh, a glass wearing idiot I, you know i i you could generally at 7 or 8 miles i would try and be tally on you know and pretty much get SA. and I, and i knew for example you know my mate if it was me i, I it would be I've, it's a four ship for example and that's the front right guy so i know where to look for the other three if you like yeah. so and you, then you yeah. know it's just sorting into the fight but again if you're flaring if you're notching you're doing a good job you know it's it, it was just it was just cracking wasn't it it was just a brilliant do you remember us, of, yeah, do, you oh, me-
3: do you remember as well there that um i think we could carry flares in goose bay couldn't we yeah uh but if you were flaring below a certain level i can't remember what it was but um the flares would bounce off the ground um <laughs> yeah you know because they they were still burning when they uh, when
4: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince dot com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns on your next order. Quince dot com slash style.
3: And they hit the ground. But one of the things, JB, I, I'm sure we've mentioned it before, but the, you know, you get pretty. I mean, Dunk's teaching the uh, you know the young pilots at the moment to to do low level, and you and you just up the speed to when you're doing sort of four twenty, four eighty, you know, five hundred plus. Um, but it's when you drop the height. So two fifty feet seems low the first time you ever do it, but you get so used to it, and then the first time you ever do hundred feet, you think there is no way on God's earth I'm going to be able to be able to operate down here because it's all you can do. To look out the front, it's like going at light speed in the Millennium Falcon, you know, <laughs> with the stars going that way. Um, But then the more comfortable you get at it, the easier it gets to the point where, you know, when you when you do that first trip, there isn't you, you think there is no way on God's earth that if I if I when I'm at low level like that, if I get attacked by someone, I can turn into them at that height. Um But, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine trips, whatever you are turning and keeping your speed up at, uh, you know, at 100 feet. I'm sure there was a rule in there that we had to come up after half a turn, 180 degrees or something like that. Because you've lost your
1: airspeed and you start falling.
3: Yeah, but you could continue those turns. You could continue fighting because actually down at 100 feet, as Parky's talking about radar seeing you and, and that sort of stuff, even the smallest, you know, even the best radar on the planet cannot see through a hill. And when you're down at that level there's quite a lot of hills around the place. You know, even the smallest river valley gives you some sort of protection against those sorts of things. So it was, it was flipping brilliant. And our mission planning systems would do this thing called um, intervisibility. So you could put the threat system in the computer on the map, the, uh, the target that you're flying against, and you could set the level, that, the height that you are flying. So you know, I could, if I put 1,000 feet in there, the, each radar system would have a sort of maximum range and it would be a solid fill. I, at 1,000 feet, all of those radars are going to see me. But as soon as I start dropping it, you'll start to see gaps in their radar coverage where they can't see through the terrain. Uh, um, and then so when you're down at 100 feet, practically the whole thing is clear. You know, if uh, all right, in a desert, it's not. But in that sort of Canadian terrain. So you could find a way into targets, you know, just by this operational low flying, um, you know, amazingly. And in it, the
2: was fort- two, it was two 360s reversal and split, wasn't it, Goddard?
3: No, but you meant reversal and no, Yeah, but that 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 was always the two was just general low level evasion. But yeah. when you're 100 feet, I think you could do a 180 at 100, and then you had to come up to 250 to fight the rest. Yeah, you so, might be right. I can't just, remember that.
1: So that rings a bell. I just want to revisit something which um, which Parky said. Which he said. And tell me if I got this right. Did you have to memorize? I guess the tactics or the formations that the attack aircraft would be in in order to find out where they were so you said you know i could spot the lead aircraft i knew what the formation would be so then i knew let's look look for the others was that something that you were doing
4: well it, it was so from the air defense side of things it's, you know with the missiles that we had at the time so you know we're, we were talking sort of sparrow Skyflash. flash the of nowadays the missiles are far far better it's still if you Go to the beam. So it's hard to describe, JB, but if you if you are flying at 90 degrees to me, there is no closure and you're down ridiculously low. So you are perfectly on a 90. I've got no closing velocity. My radar won't see you. Even some missiles will find it hard to shoot you down. So now you're probably into visual heat-seeking missiles, you know, Azram or the Sidewind, it was back in the day. But it's probably now going to be a bit of a turning fight. So you can stick your nose into that fight but you know, even the Harrier would have had a, a sidewinder on it, or you know, Russian aircraft the same. So what you don't want to be doing is turning too much in the front, guys. If there's guys behind them, because they will take you out, etc. So you you have to be very careful, and you do need SA situational awareness on what what that formation is. You know, it's like the Top Gun thing when he thinks there's uh, there's just a single turn, and it turns out to be what two of them kind of thing. You know, it, it's you, you want to know what's going on and, and decent radars now will do that and it's not difficult but you you know you need to know you're shooting the right-hand guy the left-hand guy even beyond visual range or certainly when you get into the merge
1: it, so you've got to get low enough to basically see things because of the gaps in your radar coverage or do i have that right?
4: oh yeah so you, you would you'd have uh you'd have sanctuaries so generally we'd have a thousand foot buffer between you know if it was If I was, you know, doing a a 2v4 against Duncan, four Harriers, they would have 250 feet, you know, or 100 or 250 feet, and then the fighters would be 1250 feet and above until they were tally. And that meant you could see everybody before you went below that sanctuary. And equally for them, they had to stay at low level before they could climb up and, you know, take a pot shot because they were desperate to shoot down a phantom or a tornado. You know, that would be – that's cool for them – um, but so you you always and, and even today now, you know, in red flag, it's incredibly important that there's there's a sanctuary so that if you do lose SA, you know, radar wise or whatever, you're not going to clap hands with the uh, the opposition.
1: Ah, has anyone uh, either of you, Harrier boy's ever got a virtual kill on an air defender?
2: Yeah, never. yeah. Those, they those never, times. never <laughs> did. <laughs> The, ta- the tactics are really interesting, and it was just the most fantastic flying. There's a, I don't know why I particularly remember. We'd, we'd go and fly a lot of the time in uh, – yeah, it was called OTA Echo, Operational Training Airspace Echo, I think is what it was, uh, yeah. which was up in the uh, northeast of England, uh, up into the, the Scottish borders, and you'd press through with a four-ship of Harriers to hit a target um, just uh, to, the, the, to, to the southeast of Edinburgh somewhere. Uh, you'd always get attacked by tornadoes. And on a beautiful day when they would press in, uh, as Parkey said, we had a system that allowed us to know that we were being targeted by an air defender, and if we were targeted we would immediately try and turn to that notch that parky's talking about um, and it would then collapse into a visual fight and you end up uh, as Goddess was saying you have certain rules you have to stick to but a turning fight um, with uh, whether it be uh, f3s or you know some of the uh, the foreign guys came over in f16s and uh, and, and came and uh, and fought uh, for for uh, training as well, so it was just the most. Uh, it, it was great when you're a you know a, a young lad in a this Sounds most fantastic brilliant. swept up fighter jet, and you're training you know fighting other fighters. It's just brilliant.
4: Yeah, and Dunk's right when he said uh, you know otreco in the UK. When when I second to, I did in Germany, and it's a very similar system. It, it's changed a bit, but the whole low flying. They had massive great areas where you're allowed to do two fifty feet in in Germany not quite as good in Holland and Belgium, but it, it was pretty cool. But in Germany, you know, it's certainly normally you would, you would know who you are. You know, you so see, you'd pre-brief against the Harriers or the Jags or Tornado Boys, and you'd go through an afield performer and you'd essentially know who you're up against. And you'd, what time, you know, we'd be ready for them. They'd fight their way through. But often in Germany, we wouldn't bother pre-briefing any afield because it was so busy. And you guys probably heard there's a, a it was the no flying area, one with the p mask up in sort of the North uh, north uh, German um, sort of uh, area up there. And you could just spend an hour fighting. And there would be visual furballs of F-16s and starfighters and some Brit Harriers and some, you know, it was just there, some mirages coming through. And you just, you would land and you'd have seen seven or eight different types of, you know, fighter information. And it would just... It, it just immense fun. It really was extraordinary. That does what, a lov- one, what
2: a lovely trip down memory lane. Oh, it's
4: lovely.
3: good. And, and JB, you know, you mentioned it as well. The sort of formation that the the, the attackers are flying in. And so uh, I, I think it was Parky mentioned the term battle. Now battle is a particular type of formation that is. Um, it came from the Second World War. Actually, the Germans who uh, who came up with this Luftwaffe in the uh, in the Spanish Civil War and then brought it into the Second World War. Where rather than where the Brits started in the Battle of Britain, you know, a sort of finger four close in formation, follow your leader around. The, the, essentially, the thing that's in Top Gun, actually, we never flew like that. You'd fly at least a very minimum a mile apart, probably more. Whoa. Because when you look out the window, you can look across at your wingman. He's doing the same for you. And you're giving each other cross cover for either air defense aircraft or any other aircraft coming in at you or ground fire coming up at you as well. So, you know, it gives you the very best of lookout. And someone mentioned card formation there as well. Yeah,
1: card, I think you said, was it Duncan?
3: Yeah, card. So that's, uh, you know, so just like a, uh, um, uh, you know, a four of clubs or something like that, the way the clubs are spaced on the card, you have two at the front, two at the back. So you might have, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute between them, um, but that was the thing for the, you know, I, I, clearly I've done both as well. You know, if you're pitching in on a formation down at low level, you need to know where everyone is because you can pull in behind someone and then get shot by the people you didn't see behind you. So, um, you know, there was all sorts of games and uh, in terms of what formations that you flew and and how you did it, stinger, chair, ladder, you know, all these sorts of things, and they're called certain things because. From an air, air, air defense perspective, when you when you're describing, it's called the picture. So when you describe the picture that you see, you have to have um, terms that mean the same to everyone. So there's a full NATO standard of you see a bunch of blobs in a particular shape on the radar. You'll say you know um, uh, finger. Uh, you'll say uh, you know box four. And give a bullseye position, and a bullseye position just means that you've got an anchor point on the ground, and it is a range and bearing from it, and you're given altitude as well. You know, so uh, there's a particular way of saying things on the radio so that people understand what the formation is out there. So if you end up attacking them, you know, you're not going in blind, even if you can't see them all.
1: Incredible. Incredible. So I've thought of a very basic scenario there, which is, you know, attacking planes. Sorry, ground attack aircraft and then obviously party hunting people down. But I assume if you were planning a mission yourself, you'd probably have your ground attack aircraft and then someone above the ground-attack aircraft looking after them, i.e. some sort of air defender of your own. So then parky has got to navigate the the air defenders on top of him whilst turning you down.
4: Yeah, Yeah, so you have the sort of escort or sweep, and they can be embedded. Generally, they sort of, a couple of minutes ahead, I'd say, got us, you just sort of sweep the area. And you've obviously, you know, got comms, and you can maybe, you know, tell the the, the bomber force to, you know, sneak up the left-hand side, if you like, while you try and distract lean left. A bit. but it's, it it really is a sort of, you know, a, a cat and mouse and uh, a, 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 you know war gaming, and definitely Friday. you know, tacticians just as they were back in the day. You know, World War Two, you had the good guys, who were just naturally you know more adept at it. It was, uh, you know, that that was one of the skills that you picked up, and uh, you know, it, building what God has mentioned, building that picture. And having that sort of understanding, three dimensional as well as to where people are, that that's the stuff that could really make you, uh, you know, be working hard. And it was the
2: same for the, it was the same on the ground. You know, when you were doing the ground attack, having that picture, and we were uh, pretty severely disadvantaged in the Harrier because we had no radar. So you would be listening to the picture that would be being given either by a ground control. Um, intercept radar, so you have a guy with a massive radar that 's just looking at the whole picture and he 's telling you where the threats are, and therefore you would try and step round these threats as the ground uh, as the you know the ground attack guy is trying to get to your target uh, but equally we would uh, we used to train we used to call them cameos, so combined air operations where to practice this very thing. You would get huge numbers of airplanes um, and you would have um, ground attack aircraft. You'd have fighters um, that were escorting the ground attacks. And then you'd have the uh, the Red Force fighters that would be trying to to shoot them down. So the thing that we were talking about initially with Parky saying, yeah, I could see, you know, that that uh, that formation coming in towards me just to throw the cat amongst the pigeons. You know, you that fighter escort would try and bomb burst those enemy, those Red Force fighters so that they had to reset and try and reacquire the picture to try and shoot down those ground attack aircraft that were trying to get to their target.
1: So what's bomb burst? Is that just making them disperse?
2: Yeah, just try and get them to react to uh, to their own missile systems. So the blue forces, call wow. it blue and red, the blue yeah. force missile systems, they were of course susceptible to those. So they would have to react to either run away, which Parky was excellent at. I heard very good at turning tail. And uh, and staying well behind the lines. But um, they were so generally
4: to... on the ground because he went U.S. His aircraft <laughs> was broken. But, <laughs> but, uh, but you've seen then... a couple of the videos of the boys doing <laughs> it.
2: So, you, it. You would then have to, uh, the, as that uh, Red Force air defense element, they'd have to then recommit and and of course have regain that situational awareness that both parky and goddess were talking about earlier so it's just it's it's actually enormously complex fantastic to be part Isn't of it? and uh, so, uh and sort of develop those skill sets
3: I'm imagining- jb jb if i give you a picture call see if you can see if you can work out what it is Par- parky will be salivating at this one but if i go said go, um
1: go
3: you know viper picture two groups range 10 lead group azimuth five um uh, 15,000 bogey trail group, uh, 22,000 hostile. That right there, Parky knows exactly exactly what we're talking about. So where the bullseye position on the ground is, okay. So it will be anchored on the ground somewhere, and that will be the same for everyone on on your side fighting in that particular fight. So whatever I said, if I said two six zero ten, so from that position, two six zero, so just south of west by 10 miles is where the, the groups start. And uh, I've said uh, two groups range 10. Um, so there's a group at the front that's more than one aeroplane, um, and that's at 16,000 feet. There's a group at the back 10 miles away. They're at 22,000 feet. And I said azimuth 5 as well. So these are five miles spread of each other. So you've got that sort of, you know, ace, uh, four of spades kind of picture yes. in your head. So even without seeing that on my radar... I know exactly where they are and I know exactly what formation they're in. But you, you can also, imagine
2: and you've also put in there front groups, bogey, and rear groups hostile yeah. as well. So yeah, uh, that's exactly. So isn't... we haven't
3: quite identified the front group, so we don't know definitively that they're hostile. Whereas the rear groups are hostile. So if I get my radar on and I can confirm that it's the, those ones that we're talking about, then I can shoot them.
1: Ah so bogey we're, is neither hostile nor friendly. Correct. I yeah, never unknown. knew that.
3: Bunked bogey's unknown, yeah.
1: I always thought that that, that on so films, uh, two bogeys whatever, that means that you know that means shit is going down.
3: <laughs> yeah, generally. If so, so if someone calls a bogey, you know you you you've got to visually idea uh, identify it before you can shoot it if, it. if it if it happens to be
1: hostile, that's incredible. So yeah,
3: so you can see so you can see from there, right? So that picture, nice clean picture, and as any of us will tell you, I mean, it's like you know you, your rugby podcasts. The the pitch is nice and clean. You know, you go for that kickoff, everyone's in formation. But as, as soon as someone catches it and that first ruck forms, all bets are off. You know, try and explain that to someone. And that's exactly what happens. So as soon as someone engages or they do the, the bomb burst or the exploding watermelon, as uh, as Dunk talked about, and these people disappear, change heights, do all sorts of stuff, now that picture becomes really complicated. And in the, in the current day, you know, modern day, it is so much easier because you've got data links – that are, you know, fed into your aircraft from other aircraft that you're feeding to other aircraft. So generally, even when your radar isn't on, you're seeing a picture on the display. So you could um, And you you've got a helmet mounted sight. So when you turn around the corner or look around the corner, you can see little designator boxes around the place with all of these people in.
1: Uh, yeah, of course. So I'm just thinking though, no, you could do you know if say if you're in your um you're in your Typhoon Goddess, you could be doing a sweep in the wrong area on purpose so parky rushes over there to fire some stuff at you whilst dunk goes 20 miles down the road or whatever it is and
3: exactly see you'd make a good fire pilot jb
1: sneaky (laughs) unless he doesn't bite and then and then all bets are off
3: yeah so you can imagine can't you that the intelligence that you have on the other side is really important you know understanding the sorts of tactics they employ because, and again, this is exactly like sports. You know, what tactic are the other team going to employ? So how would you defend against it? I mean, to the, uh,
1: to the degree you might want to know, you know, how each different squadron behaves. You might have certain characteristics just from the yep. squadron.
3: Yep exactly and they well, so if the, you look the, back at world war 2
2: then certainly different squadrons had you know reputations didn't they the polish squadrons for instance had a uh, a reputation for for being particularly aggressive uh fighters um so yeah they 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 did and i, I guess if something kicked off like that again then uh, again squadrons would have that reputation if they could get through and hit targets or if they were you know shooting enemy aircraft down in abundance
1: that's fascinating. And also has nothing to do whatsoever with the topic that we decided that we were going to talk about an hour and 12 minutes ago.
3: <laughs> Is that well, how long it's been? God, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what, I've enjoyed this trip down memory lane. Like oh, that. It's, been, it's, it's, been, it's been a good one. A good I
2: was, we should do some questions there, got us. Let's do some questions. Yeah, I've, we've got a few. Questions. Go on then, smash us with the first one.
3: No, Parky was going to say something. Come was on. he? No,
4: no, no, I said...
3: I
2: think he'd finished. It
4: sounds like he's, finish. his, yeah, it sounds <laughs> like he's giving his tactics very close to his vest there.
3: Right, here we go. Here's some questions then to uh, to finish off. God, honestly, that felt like we have been going for two minutes. How long have we been going for? One hour,
1: 12 minutes, boys.
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, everyone, because there's no commutes at the moment, aren't they? Uh, are there? So people are just bored in their houses. Yeah. Um, right, this is from uh, Brian N, Brian Kentman. What's your favourite civilian airfield? There's a question.
2: <laughs> That's another uh, question.
1: Bottle I'm going to go group. first
2: before, before anyone else gets in there. But for me, it's got to be White Waltham. I love White Waltham. Oh, yes. Why? Why? like it it's, well it's a beautiful old still a grass airfield it's got an art deco clubhouse that was used uh, during cool. the war it uh, it was the uh the main operating base for the air transport auxiliary so although it wasn't an actual operational fighter base it um it 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 had these incredible people, boys and girls that flew all different types whether they be bombers, fighters, they were just given a set of notes and told to deliver these aeroplanes off to the squadrons so that in itself is a, is a fantastic history but um, we spent quite a lot of time there and uh, we ended up, there's one particular one that sticks in the mind where we'd done this huge fly past for the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Britain and we were supposed to be going into North Holt, cut a long story short, the weather Uh, we got past, the weather was fine and we were battling through some miserable weather A Park, you'll remember this one (laughs) it was a uh, bit rainy it was a bit rainy so there were six of us fighters so I was leading six uh, fighters just having done these uh, big fly pasts um, and we'd come past White Waltham and I'd seen that it was clear. So effectively it was my banker. I had it in the back pocket and, uh, we had to turn around because there was so much rain and low cloud around. Um, we pitched back to, uh, to White Waltham and luckily someone was still in the tower. Everything, I mean, it was getting towards sunset, wasn't oh. it, Parco? And, yeah, um, yeah. And not... so we ended up then uh, uh, calling up on the radio and saying, hey, listen, we've got to divert somewhere. Are you happy for us to land with you? And they said, we'd be delighted. <laughs> so uh, we, uh, we put them all down at, uh, onto the airfield. And um, they, yeah. they were quite happy for us to line all these fighters up outside this old Art Deco clubhouse. And then, God bless them, as we got out, they bought us all a beer. So it's got a, a certain special place in my heart.
1: What, what were you flying?
2: Well, I was flying the Mark II Spitfire. Can't remember what you were in, Parky. But we had um, we Bye, had, I think four Spits, two Hurricanes. I think. Yeah,
1: was. that's it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a beautiful picture here. I've just looked. I've just looked it up, and it's a beautiful picture here of White Waltham with uh, a blue Spitfire in it, which uh, is well, which looks very, very nice indeed. Yeah, it's a great place.
4: Oh, yeah. What about you, Parky? Um, Headcorn would be too obvious. I think I, I can remember. North Weald, we went to quite a few times, and it's got still got Battle of Britain revetments there, um, which are just amazing because air legends have moved in there. and We had a look around, so that's where you get two Spitfires in the revetment, and all the ground crew and the pilots could sort of sit in the back of the U-shaped revetment, and it's just fantastic. It's it's you know like a time warp. So you, when you get to North Weald, we'll, we'll go and have a look at those places, and I can remember one just of a little story very quick, was, I don't know if you were the boss now, it was when Johnny Stringer was the uh, the stage and that I was going to be doing Westminster, uh, but the weather was just looking really like 30 mile an hour, 35 mile an hour winds. And, and Westminster, mid-September, was not going to happen on the Battle of Britain fly past, uh, you know, for the, for the few as well. So uh, I, I remember just phoning the Met Man just for a final check that it was going to be by one o'clock local, the weather was going to be ridiculously windy, and he went, "Well, yeah, I mean, it will be. It will be at Coningsby, and and then obviously uh, it'll be sort of by two o'clock. It'll be very windy down south." So I was like, so at one o'clock. Will London still be okay? Yes, it will. And the short of it, I phoned the stage. And it was a goer, so maybe it was you, Dunk, and it was back on. And I got Johnny in, and we took off. We did, you know, just before we got wet, we pre-deployed to White Waltham. You're, you're airborne from White Waltham, uh, sorry, from... Uh, um... North Weald. North Weald. Well, you're about the same, actually. From uh, White Waltham, you can see London. But from North Weald, once you're airborne, you can just see London. It's so close. And we did the fly pass, a spit in a hurry over Westminster, which was brilliant, back into North Weald, just as the winds were really picking up. They put our spit and hurry in a hangar, moved some other aircraft out, which were going to get really blown uh, away. And then... Uh, we had a beer as well, and then got picked up by the ground crew from Goodwood and drove home. And it was just, it was just a fantastic, you know, just we managed to get it in that feeling, you know. Especially, you know, those uh, those Westminster's were very, very treasured because they didn't come around that often. And uh, you know, it was obviously a massive honour to do it when when the boys were still around, which they were, you know, a, a few years ago. But uh, North Wales, lovely, a really so close to London uh, and a great little airfield. So- There's
2: also a theme there as well, isn't there? That uh, we, we both got given a beer now at the end of it. I, I'm sure that's probably got <laughs> yeah. something to, something well, to do with it.
3: Funnily enough, I mean, I was going to. I can't really go for Kenley, which is where I grew up, and you know, again with the sort of love of aviation, which is about the Britain Airfield, because I've never landed there. But um, I think, and it, and it's based on a story, just like both of your uh, favorite airfields. There, I think, it's Goodwood um where I, I went to the revival i landed it was pretty late at night late oh, I remember at night. late in the
4: yeah, in. yeah
3: late in the evening I was in the silver spitfire land and and you know, you can, JB, you can see why these things are called spitfires when you're landing in the dusk, because all you can see is the bloody flame that's coming yeah. out of the exhaust in uh, in front of you. So landed at Goodwood. And, uh, you know, I subsequently checked my logbook and I'd first landed there in 1980, in July 1989 on my first solo cross country when I was doing my um, uh, private pilot's license. And uh, then the very next time I land there, I'm in a spitfire, which is flipping amazing to me. Um and it's got Battle of Britain heritage as well, but it was incredible because I taxied round, never been there before. Taxied into, could see Parky and another guy, Smithy, standing there waiting for me. And you remember Parky? I mean, they do it every year, but they built the revetments, you know, the sort of Second World War stuff. So um, you guys were in, a, I think, a hurricane and a spit. There was a P forty seven there. Um, and a couple of mustangs i think you know so parked up and the whole place is done up the revival they've got everyone is dressed in the uh, in the sort of second world war gear it's pretty late at night and uh, as soon as i get out the airplane the grand crew there turn it around parky hands me a a bottle of spitfire beer obviously um obviously um which just tasted flippin amazing you know when you've uh, just stepped out of a spitfire and then you, I remember you two guys, especially being petrol heads, went, come and have a look at this. took me about, I don't know, 30 feet around the corner, and there was this paddock there with um, 10 Ferrari GTOs. Do you remember yeah, that part? 10? That yeah. Year? 10? And,
1: Unbelievable.
3: Yeah. Well, so each one of those Ferrari GTOs, minimum, 25 million quid. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, 10's quite a lot.
3: Yeah. So, you know, you've got a, a, a quarter of a billion pounds worth of car, and... And some, because, you know, all of the rest of Goodwood is covered in these amazing cars for the, uh, That's for the exactly revival. exactly
1: what I'm gonna, I was going to ask. I thought Goodwood was a racetrack, not a Yeah, airfield. so
3: there's a race, there is a racetrack that runs around the, uh, the airfield, you know. So subsequently in the weekend, we flew what? quite a lot. I don't know whether you remember that particular one, Parky, But we flew quite a lot. And on the final, on the Sunday, I took off to go meet up with a Hurricane to do a fly pass for the Battle of Britain over westminster yeah i
4: remember
3: millie was in the hurricane and it went u.s so i ended up on my own at the most amazing day you know every time i tell this story i talk about the fact that you could see the back of your head as soon as you got airborne and from the hold i could see all the parts of london that i needed to straight past the eye over the top of um westminster abbey where you know, some of the old boys remaining down there, and then asked for a depart out of uh, across Wimbledon over the top of center court. Uh, Wimbledon wasn't running at the time, and then back down to Goodwood. And when I landed at Goodwood, uh, they were just finishing a race. And the weirdest thing, it was on the short runway there. They've got a big old Jumbotron, this massive screen. And if you glance over to it, you know, the camera pans to you flying this aeroplane. There's you coming in <laughs> to land, and you can see yourself. Coming into land on this massive screen, yeah.
2: just an amazing awesome. I need weekend.
1: To go, I need to go to Goodwood. Goodwood sounds absolutely incredible. everyone needs to go there. It's
2: oh, just there. the most amazing event, isn't it? Can, can, but just those three stories, I uh, just we we've been lucky boys, eh? Haven't we? I mean, what a fantastic yeah.
3: time! Just, oh, I tell you what, I'd rather be lucky than good. <laughs> right, yeah. so here's. A, a, sorry, I mean, just, we've just, got tons of just, questions. We're going to have to do these again at some point. But just yeah, go you on, continue, JB.
1: White Waltham. Is there anything else that goes on there? Because I've got pictures of here, here with a with a concrete run- runway. Is that is that wrong? Is there another one?
4: No, it's grass now. Back in the day, it may have been, but it's uh, it's yeah, got it's three all grass, grass now. Runway. So
1: they have a fairy gannet there. XA four five nine.
4: Yeah,
2: it's yeah. in a pretty sorry state though.
1: Oh, what a, it was I last time I was
2: there. It was just part
1: behind the hangar. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's in an awful state. God, I, I would love to own that thing. <laughs> Wait, um, you, right, if you offer him a tenner...
3: Oh, right, here we go. Next sorry, question. Tom. So this is from um, Matt Wright at Maffy587. <laughs> this is a good one. I like this one. I've got so many stories about this. We will have to. We could probably do an entire episode on this, so let's just keep this short. But has anyone really, in capital letters, needed a wee whilst flying, and what was the outcome? Quickest taxi and shut down at Coningsby ever. Well, you don't actually need to taxi and shut down, do you?
2: I have never weed in an aeroplane. What? <laughs> I have never <laughs> weed in an aeroplane. I have, have been, been in so... long enough. I have... Oh, my goodness. I, I, over the... I, I did a sortie in Afghanistan that was six hours long. And when I landed, I had to just wee at the back of the aeroplane. I... You know, I was actually, I had to reverse uh, my rudder pedal inputs because I'd crossed my legs over to the other side. I was so (laughs) desperate to go to the loo. But uh, there have been numerous times where I have just, you know, I've literally just had to get out the aeroplane and go, right, sorry, everyone.
3: (laughs) So have you got a phobia about weighing in the aeroplane? On, but, and, and for the listeners, there is a procedure for weighing in the aeroplane because you carry a thing called a pee bag or a piddle pack, as the Americans call I, it. I, have I- got is, so? Just to explain, that is a uh, is a small um, uh, plastic bag that either has a, the old ones had a sponge in, and the new ones have a, a gel in that solidifies whatever you put in there. But it is the hardest thing to break the seal. And go, and as 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 everyone knows, once you've broken that seal, you ain't stopping. Um, and on several occasions, I've thought this bag's going to overflow.
2: Well, I've got a story, I'm sure I've told this before, but I'm going to tell you again because, uh, so again, I was out in Afghanistan, I was uh, paired up with uh, uh, a friend of mine called uh, Christian Ward, um, God rest his soul, but uh, he is no longer with us, sadly. But, um, we were paired up. We were going off. Uh, we're doing a night mission up to the, uh, to the northeast of the country. Um, and we got airborne. We'd only been airborne about 15 minutes, quite a long transit, about a three-quarters of an hour transit to get up there, meet a tanker, and then carry on. Anyway, um, so his nickname was Mental, Mental Ward. So uh, Mental gets on the radio. He says, Dunk, I'm going to be off the radio for five minutes. I need a wee. I went, all right. So uh, five minutes later, uh, I'm back up. I said, all right. He said, There's piss everywhere. (laughs) I was like, okay. So once I'd finished laughing, we then had to go and do like a a three or four hour mission. And we came back uh, for the, uh, for the weeing debrief. I'm like, what happened, mate? And he said, right, well, he'd never used one before. And he'd said to the safety equipment guys, right, how do these work? And what they'd said to him, so as God has said, it's like a bag with a sponge in it, with a, a like a neck, like a, a balloon, I suppose. Anyway, the, the safety equipment guy had said, well, sir, what you do is you uh, you just blow into the bag to <laughs> so blow it up, and then you put it on the end of the old fella, and off you go. <laughs> so, of course, he'd taken this as red. And, of course, once there's air in the bag, there's nothing else going in there. So he'd unstrapped in this Harrier. I think I can't, we can't have been in goombags, but we'd unstrapped from this Harrier, you know, up at uh, 20,000 feet on this transit, uh, blown into the bag to blow it up, and then tried to go. And of course, nothing was ever going to go into the bag. So it just ended up being all over the cockpit.
3: Like I said, you know, there are some interesting stories around. Well, I've got a couple, but but the the one I'll tell was um, so it was post 9 11. And uh, I may have told this one before actually uh it's post nine eleven and we were doing quite long missions from the base that I was at shore. We were doing combat air patrols over washington d c you know fast really interesting seeing you know you see the Pentagon, you could see everything that was going on. you go and refuel uh, over Baltimore um and so you'd end up doing sort of uh four or five hour missions. And um, and the Americans were brilliant, you know. For whatever reason, they stayed uber hydrated all of the time, you know. So there'd be guys filling up pedal packs before they'd even left the runway, you know. Be, uh, <laughs> they'd be they'd uh, be filling them up in the end of runway check, the EOR. But you know, I was like you don't, you know. It's I I never particularly liked it because you have to make your seat safe, um, you know, or put your pin in, and then you're unstrapping in the airplane, and i, and I'm, I it, it's just unnerves me being unstrapped in a fast jet you know doing just slightly subsonic and not being i mean it's ridiculous really isn't it as if that's going to save you but um you know you're at least attached to your parachute if something goes wrong anyway so i'm in this one and it was it was a absolutely fantastic i think this could have been the thanksgiving day that i flew on and um george Bush jr is giving a speech in the Rose Garden. I think it was the, uh, the French president or, or I I can't remember. There was some big thing going on on the ground. And, uh, I thought, flipping it, I I can't hold this any longer. So, you know, did everything I needed to got the pedal pack out, put the autopilot on in terms of, you know, uh, altitude hold, told the other guy, there's a code word for it. Um, I told the other guy that, you know, that's what I was doing anyway, did my business and, um, you know, sort of unstrapped and all that sort of stuff. And, just, I mean, I was about three quarters of the way through, and I thought, "Hang on, something's not right." I looked out the window and had, and I could tell all of a sudden that the nose of this F sixteen was about forty degrees nose up. I thought, "Oh my god!" And at that moment, Parky, remember it? There was the low speed warning horn, which means your aeroplane is about to depart. And what I'd done in terms of you know getting undressed and unzipped and everything. Was not the throttle with my elbow, so the airplane had tried to hold an altitude, but I'd, we'd got slower and slower. Was and slower it slower.
2: your elbow? <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, and I'd got to the point, and I—I I, I mean, clearly, I rescued her. I had to put her into afterburner, um, you know, in order to uh, in order to get away with this. I don't and think I you had told the story goddess. us. It's brilliant. I had nightmares, uh, absolute nightmares later on. Of you know, had this <laughs> gone bad, and I'd. Ended up departing the aeroplane over the top <laughs> of the Rose Garden. You know, the, the press, the first thing they would have seen is this pea bag <laughs> exploding. <There's something laughs> board <of inquiry> found. <laughs> exploding next to George <laughs> Bush, the President of the United States. And then me coming down on a parachute with my zip open, uh, <laughs> landing on his shoulders
1: mm.
3: <laughs> in some sort of Hot Shots press conference.
1: Excellent. Uh, Ah, boys, I think I'm going to say I think you've excelled yourself. I've learned a lot this evening, and it's very enjoyable.
3: Uh, we've got so many other questions. I tell you what, uh, next week or the week after, should we do a podcast dedicated to all the questions that came in tonight? <laughs> yeah, we should really. We should really. We were too busy we're like
2: banging it. on
1: about uh, memory lane, weren't we? No, exactly. Very, very good, boys. Well <laughs> done, indeed. Right, you can find us on Twitter, which is at Pilot Episodes Podcast, and you can find YouTube boys at. Got us to it, and
2: at Doug Major two two two.
1: I'm at J Beardmore, and I don't think Lego Park is still about, is he? Yeah, Lego Park is still around. Uh, that's all right. Thank God for that. Um,
2: I don't want to tempt fate here, JB, but the recording quality sounds like it's been pretty good tonight.
1: I've changed my computer. It's the computer's fault. People will not be happy.
2: I, I think know. they they like the TDK c90 audio quality don't they I tell you when you what,
1: wind it with the pencil when i'm recording so it's just pulling back the curtains a bit now not that anyone cares but i'm going to tell you anyway i usually record my other podcast egg chases i'm all in the same room and it's fine it's fantastic for whatever reason it is when i recorded on my other laptop um it kept on cutting out as we found out but this one just runs straight through which means i can do all my rugby dungeon interviews all over again so uh, yeah it's it's fantastic but it's
2: only taken us how long have we been doing these about two or three years
1: Two years or whatever? Uh, two years? These ones, two years. Egg Chasers, but maybe may seven years on Egg Chasers now.
2: Blimey. Definitely two seven years. years. But in those two years, we've only done three podcasts.
1: Yeah, so. <laughs> we're not the most prolific, <laughs> all, But our quality's imagine, high. Can you
3: imagine <laughs> how good the next one's going to be? Because 80 years ago today, what sort of stuff was happening? Oh, good call.
2: Oh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think what day it is. What day is it?
1: Bad things were happening, I'm guessing.
3: Well, we're getting no. towards June, July, August, which is the height of the Battle of Britain. So uh, I reckon we can have a good. Yeah, we were the still, next still
4: still in the um in the Channel at the moment, weren't we? The fight yeah. was there.
3: Yeah,
4: it's about to start on the airfields. I think.
3: Mm.
4: Parky, are there any
3: flypasts or anything planned for the ATM?
4: Well, yeah, n- nothing that's you know obviously we, we don't fly over London anyway. But uh, I think there's going to be a Headcorn air show, and I think there's going to be a big uh, Duxford, you know, COVID dependent but uh, that's that's the kind of plan and um yeah i mean it was, it's something's got to be done hasn't it for the 80th i mean wow what a big event
1: yes quite right we'll we will reconvene soon so thank you for everyone thank you everyone for listening and from me uh, me doug godders and parky goodbye hey it's danny
4: pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?